Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You will not want to miss this incredible conversation with a legend. I call him this century's Carl Sagan. And that is no small amount of praise for Dr. Phil Plate, who is joining us today. I'm hoping that we are now live on the Into the Impossible Network. And we're also live co-streaming on Clubhouse for those of you who don't have video access uh, or don't have an invitation. That would be so sad uh, to not have an invitation. But that's the way the Clubhouse crumbles. And uh, hopefully we can make do with just our video extraordinaire. And it is such a great pleasure to welcome Phil Plate, the bad astronomer himself. Where is he? Gotta get him on screen. There he here. is. There I am. There yeah, he is, joining us all the way from the wilds of Colorado, where he is a gentleman farmer. He is a gentleman <laughs> astronomer. He is an inspiration to literally millions around the world. As I say, he is this generation's Carl Sagan. Here is my finger puppet. Phil, do you have a finger puppet of Carl Sagan? Uh, no. All right. I'm we do have some puppets and stuff around here, but I'm, you know, I'd have to find them. I will rectify that. And if you're really good, I will throw in a side order of the very first good astronomer. This is Galileo Galilei who Phil is intimately connected with. Oh, let's see what you got there. Puppet I have, I have Krieger from Archer. Nice. So that's, you know, that's about the best I can do. I think we, uh, you might have gotten that here in San Diego. Way. Did you get that in San Diego at Comic-Con? Uh, no, that's a long story. Uh, uh, it turns out the, the, the voice actor, Lucky Yates, who does Krieger, is a big science fan. Wow. And, uh, and so he, he gave me that. So now I've got a, a Krieger doll. And it says it says rude things when you hit the button. So. <laughs> well, we'll keep this PG-13 at <laughs> least. Um, so, Phil, I want to take us back to the early uh, 21st century, 20 years ago when Bad Astronomy came Yikes. out. And uh, it's really amazing. I have the audio copy. I have the Kindle copy. I have the printed copy. And I went back because I was so excited wow. you accepted this. And I went back and I and I read and listened to it, and I couldn't believe how much has changed. Because back then, news anchors didn't know much about science and were proud of their lack of knowledge or ignorance about science. There were people that believed the Earth was flat. Can you believe that? There were people that aliens are among us even to this very day. And there were even people back then in the early part of this millennium who thought that vaccines were dangerous. It's so glad and so refreshing that thanks to your book, all that changed, and now we have nothing but science and uh, and the culture of science. Oh my God! Uh, are you disappointed or dismayed at how little has changed in some ways, Phil? I see you as an as an optimistic pessimist or a pessimistic optimist. Which is it? Yeah, um, one of the things about doing this sort of thing, and that that is like jumping in both feet to debunk bad science. And I, I don't, I tend not to use that term quite as much as I used to, but, uh, well, you know, you can't debunk something unless it's bunk. Uh, and it, it, the thing about it is that you have to go in knowing that this is going to be probably the single most frustrating thing you're ever going to do in your whole life. Uh, it, you know, you absolutely know going in that you will make a difference. Hopefully. I mean, you, you can't know that, but you can hope that you'll make a difference. Yeah. Um, but the second part of that is that 
you'll have to do it all over again in five years or less. You'll make a difference with some people, but there there's always new people coming in. This is a pipeline. And so, uh, you know, I can spend all that time, like I did debunking people who thought the moon landings were fake or that, you know, vaccines have mercury in them or whatever. Uh, but what's going to happen is sometime later, it's just going to be just as strong as it was. You might cause a little dip. You'd be, and, and even that, mm, that's that's wonderful if you can do that. But typically, it's just that this is an ongoing thing. It's a dynamic process. You can't just say, well, you know, we debunked that. Now we're done. Let's move on. That's never going to happen. <laughs> right. And and as you say, you know, bunk and debunk. Uh, I never know which one I am, bunk or debunk. But um, but it really made me think because I had a, a kind of um, semi-confrontational but, but friendly, good-natured conversation with uh, a man by the name of Stephen Meyer, who is a proponent of intelligent design. And that has an awful, you know, kind of reputation in scientific circles. Uh, he's actually a very sweet gentleman and we had a friendly debate. I'm always very courteous. That's, you know, I'll have on people, whatever their viewpoint, as long as they're respectful and not preaching odious nonsense. But, um, but he pointed out one thing when we talk about, uh, we talk about things like the multiverse or string theory. And, uh, and it's always mentioned that uh, Karl Popper mentioned that the criterion for good science is that it be falsifiable. And he said, well, you know, the earth is, uh, is flat, is falsifiable. Therefore, is it good science, you know, or is it part of scientific uh, investigation? And so I said, well, yes and no. Uh, in fact, it sure appears that the earth is flat. And I think some of that is responsible for the perniciousness, persistence of scientific fallacies. But um, I first want to, uh, before we get to that, if you have a comment on that, um, falsification is held up as sort of Gödel's incompleteness theorem of physics. What do you think about this notion that even though you can falsify something, that's still not not make it science? For example, astrology or or the flat Earth. Oh, I see where you're going. Um, yes, uh, if something is false, okay, if something's not falsifiable, th then is it science? Yes. Um, I can argue that back and forth, and, and, but if we set that aside and, and take the take the sideways version of that that you just said, if something is falsifiable, is it science? And the answer to that is obviously no, <laughs> because if I say um, I am for, uh, you know, that's falsifiable, yet it's not science. Um, that is that is a claim that has no evidence, makes no, you know, it, it makes predictive uh, uh statements, you know, if I'm Thor, then I can wield Mjolnir and I can fly around and I can summon lightning. I can't do any of that stuff. <laughs> so that's falsifiable, uh, but it's not, it's not science. In, in a sense, you can say it's a scientific claim uh, because if, if I make a claim that is, that has some sort of evidence for it uh, and that does make some sort of uh, prediction, then you can say, sure, that falls in the framework of science, but that doesn't make it science. Uh, and so astrology, for example, is falsifiable and it has been falsified to my satisfaction uh, many, many, many times over. So uh, that's not a science. Now, the, the, the more straightforward aspect of this um, is that is science, you know, if, if you make a claim uh, for it to be scientific, it has to be falsifiable. I, there are, I guess there are levels of detail to that. I don't think that's necessarily true at first. Um, if you have an issue in quantum mechanics, uh, which shows you that, for example, uh, in one interpretation of quantum mechanics, that every time any decision is made, if you, whatever you mean by decision, but anytime an event can go left or right, uh, both things actually happen. 
and you're just splitting off and creating a new universe. This is super oversimplified, of course. Uh, this is a whole branch of, 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 of thinking in quantum mechanics, and I'm, I'm summing it down in one sentence. So please don't, don't you know, come with the pitch, uh, pitchforks. Well, undergraduate should not bring this up to the exam. This yes, exactly. But if, if that's sort of your idea, and you say you posit, well, there's a multiverse. Um, that is, uh, you know, is that a scientific claim? Eh, well, you're trying to explain some evidence, and you don't have a whole lot of evidence for this. You don't really have a whole lot of evidence against it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not scientific necessarily. What you have to do is you have to start thinking about it scientifically and say, well, if there is a multiverse, is there something else that that it might have an effect on? When we look out into the universe, is it does this leave an imprint on, on the universe itself in some way? Does this explain something else? Uh, and any big idea in science is going to come along that way. I mean, when, when quantum mechanics itself was first dreamed up, uh, there was a problem in astrophysics where we were trying to, uh, astronomers were looking at the colors of stars and the way stars emitted light didn't make sense. And I want to say it was Max Planck uh, uh, who came along and said, well, let's pretend that light doesn't behave the way we've always thought it does. Let's pretend it's quantized. It comes in these little packets. And when you do that, suddenly that problem goes away. And uh, he just kind of made this up. He said, well, maybe we're just thinking of this wrong. Einstein did the same thing with relativity. You know, he, he started with a thought experiment and said, let's see where this goes. Um, and you know what? If, you're, if your theory winds up not explaining anything, it's not terribly useful. But if it does, uh, then it becomes a little bit more firmly grounded and you can start testing it. Yeah. Uh, and then there are, of course, things that are science fictional. And you start off your book with... Uh, conversation about how lost in space and all these bad science fiction as you call it influenced you in a good way and of course many of my listeners uh of course know that i am the co-director of the arthur c clark center for human imagination here at uc san diego and in this capacity we have you know paid tribute to uh, sir arthur's legacy via the quest to understand the imaginative process that could couple together uh, fiction and nonfiction, science fact with with um, speculative culture. We've had all sorts of, of uh, exposés in that front. Uh, but I wonder, you know, to what extent has science fiction, even though it's sort of known to be wrong, has it influenced you? And, and has it made you, you know, a better scientist? Or did it make you a better scientist? Um, uh, from these considerations of things of asking the question, could this be possible to have uh, a flat, you know, an orbiting satellite in geosynchronous orbit? Uh, no, that was fanciful. Is there anything about science fiction that inspired you as a scientist? You know, it's funny. The way you phrase that has got me thinking now. You said science fiction, which is known to be wrong. And I think, well, that's an interesting way to phrase it because um, you can say, well, if you're writing a story, you're lying right? This didn't happen. It's like, well, no, of course not, but I'm not lying. I'm telling you a story. It, you, you know, there's a, there's an agreement between the writer and the reader that this is, this is made up, that it's not real. So um, mm -hmm. in that sense, and, and now that I, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, that actually uh, crystallizes some other thinking I've had um, in a, in a, in a science fiction story, there are going to be some caveats, some some MacGuffin, Mac, um, uh, MacGuffins, as they say in the business. Something you throw in there that the the the, the audience just has to accept: warp drive, transporters, <laughs> uh, energy, you know, directed energy weapons, aliens. You you can make a huge list of these things, and that's that's fine, and I'm okay with that. As a matter of fact, I love that because without a lot of those, you can't tell these stories. 
um, it becomes a problem when they're not internally consistent. Uh, and so if you if if you posit something, and I'm I'm not going to you know worry that if you go faster than light, that's actually a form of time travel in some sense. You know I'm not going to worry about it if if you if you start dealing with all the relativistic uh, aspects of your faster than light drive. I don't care about that um, so much in the story. But if you use it one way in 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 one episode and another way in another episode that contradicts the first one. I want to know about that. You know, why did you do it that way? Was it just lazy storytelling? Did you just not care? You know, that that's the difference between being fiction and being wrong. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, uh, in in the, I, I think I'm hoping to answer your question along the way here. Uh, that stories are important to people. I mean, that's one of the one of the first things we did as a society way back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, maybe not that long ago, verbal language, but I mean that stories were told and we 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 learn from stories. We their morality plays. We learn about uh being human through these stories. Uh we get one of the more, most important things for me specifically too is uh you you see the world through another person's eyes. You get insight into the way other people think, which I think is very, very important because when we think we're right and we don't really have any experience with how other people deal with reality, uh, yeah, you're just going to butt heads. There's never going to be any real kind of discussion that way. Yeah. So um, all of this is important. And what I found in, in, in for science fiction for me uh, it, you know, I just love the spaceships. I love the aliens. That's just that that gets me going. It just makes me happy. Um, but there's also a lot of morality that goes on in, in good science fiction. Like right now, The Expanse uh, has a huge amount of morality in it. And there's a, a big conflict going on between Earth and Mars and, and people who live out in the asteroid belt. And the thing is, everybody thinks they're right. And the way these characters are presented, their arguments make sense. Now, whether they're executing the, the morality of these arguments correctly, that's a different story. But everybody's got their own reasons for doing things. And I love that. It, and it, that inspires me uh, in, in my own life and in the decisions and the way I think about life as well. Yeah, I love the aspect of science fiction that allows you to essentially do Gedanken experiments with speculations about culture. Uh, because even though the uh, you know kind of tropes to the contrary exist – Science is done by human beings, and human beings are subject to all the foibles and uh, peccadilloes, uh, even if they are scientists, that all human beings are sensitive to. And I, I think that's uh, quite wonderful when you get to kind of pregame the future, I call it, when we get to uh, explore the nature of, of science fiction and, and perhaps understand science fact uh, even better, as Sir Arthur Clarke uh, certainly impelled us to do. I want to uh, just mention to folks that we are live with... Uh, we are live with none other than the Bad Astronomer, who goes by the uh, moniker The Bad Astronomer, who is none other than Phil Plate, who is joining us from Colorado, and there I am with him. Uh, you can find him on Twitter is the best way to access him, and that is at Bad Astronomer. And he has a newsletter, which I have subscribed to for a long time. And he even has a YouTube channel, which is The Bad Astronomer. I guess Bad Astronomer was taken. Uh, and we can't always choose our names. People are like, you're so haughty. You you have to call yourself Dr. Brian Keating on, on Twitter and on uh, and on YouTube. Why are you so snotty about it? Like, are you trying to be Dr. Jill Biden? And I say, no, no, no. I would love to be just Brian Keating. But the guy wanted like 100 grand for those domains. So, you know, on one hand, yeah. it's, it's flattering. Yeah. But on the other hand, give it back to me. Stop squatting on my domain, whoever you are. 
Thor out there. Um, but you can find him online. And he does such phenomenal work, outreach. And definitely subscribe to his newsletter. There's a free version of it. Of course, you are welcome to do the paid version, as, uh, as many, many subscribers do. Uh, yesterday, speaking of aliens, because you mentioned it, you mentioned the A word, you, you, you brought up the A word. Um, yesterday, you had a, a marvelous tweet. And actually, I really want to commend you on the uh, just the throughput, the output that you have in terms of scientific communication. And we're going to get to that later. I'm going to make a provocative claim, Phil, that scientists okay. have a moral obligation to be not as good as you, but we have to do something. It's not enough to not try. But we'll get to that in just a little bit, my hectoring, my moral and ethical hectoring of my fellow scientists. But I want to talk about aliens because you mentioned aliens. Okay. Um, and, of course, in the book, you talk a little bit about it as well. And they're replete within science fiction. Yesterday you mentioned Oumuamua. Uh, who was, uh, which was the subject of a book by a previous guest of mine, Dr. Avi Loeb, the former chairman of the astronomy department at uh, Harvard University, a little university, I'm told, up in uh, the Northeast. And uh, Avi made the claim that Oumuamua was alien technology with a confidence of greater than 90% from his perspective. Yesterday, you tweeted out and informed people of a rather prosaic explanation for it. And I wonder if you can comment on it and just as science can be informed by a science fiction, sometimes it can be hurt by science fiction, in my opinion, because you get this prosthetic forehead and, and you get the alien, you know, kind of with the googly eyes and, and wanting to probe people and, and so forth. Uh, and I pointed out to Avi, just the last thing before I wind up this meandering question, I pointed out to Avi that the majority of alien sightings are done in America on planet wide, come from America. And the majority of those come from the Northeast, where he is this esteemed professor. So anyway. Um, can science fiction hurt science because it'll portray these fanciful, you know, narratives of things we don't really believe to be probable? And then, um, what do you make of, you know, kind of the hype cycle in science from discovery, you know, tentative discovery to like, we are being visited by alien technology. What, what do you make of those two right. competing forces? Um, wow. Uh, okay. So for the next two hours, I'll be talking about this. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. Sure. You know, science fiction inspires science and that, that is the evidence for that is overwhelming. You can talk to any number of scientists, my age and younger who say, you know, they were inspired by Star Trek, for example, or, or Battlestar Galactica or whatever science fiction that they watched or read or consumed in whatever manner. Um, and, and so you can, it, it, you can inspire scientists directly through that. You can also inspire science. You you need some some device to get you out of trouble in a story, and you, <laughs> you whip that thing out and use it. And then some scientist goes, you know, there might be something to that, mm -hmm. and that's happened as well. You know, not necessarily one to one like that, but there has been inspiration from these shows or or books or whatever. Uh, and you can you can find history is is filled with things like that. It can hurt science too, because if it represents something incorrectly, uh, especially if you're young and you're consuming this stuff, that can be sort of the way you think about things. Uh, so, you know, evolution, for example, is always portrayed very poorly uh, in in mass media science fiction. You know, you, you're always saying, "Well, we're they're they're more advanced in an evolutionary sense. They're they're uh, they're evolving towards something." It's like, well, evolution doesn't work that way. You're not more advanced in an evolutionary sense. You're just more. You're better adapted for a system that that exists around you. Uh, so you know, if, if a if a, a a virus or a cell, a bacterium, 
can can thrive in our environment. Who's to say whether they're more advanced than we are? Um, you have to define your terms a little bit better. So sure. Also, the way scientists are portrayed. Uh, you go back in the 1950s, and scientists kind of look like me: bald guy, beard, white. Uh, generally older, with a young, attractive daughter who is also becoming a scientist, who then becomes uh, uh, romantically involved with the hero of the story. That that trope is used over and over and over again, um, and that's not true. And so, when when you do surveys and you ask kids, you know, draw a scientist, they draw somebody who looks like me. They don't draw a woman. They don't draw uh, somebody who's not white or anything like that. Uh, that's getting a lot better. A lot of uh, movies and TV shows and other types of mass media are going out of their way now to show a more diverse group of scientists. And I love that. Mm. Um, the other part of your question was, um, uh, is there a tendency to overhype things? Is there a tendency to leap to a conclusion which is not warranted by the evidence. This is how I'm going to interpret your question, at least. Yes. Uh, and that happens all the time. And there's an old critical thinking uh, phrase that says, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. You know, unless you're at a, at a reserve someplace where there are zebras. But typically, you know, in America, for example, if you hear hoofbeats, it's probably horses and, you know, more likely than that. So the idea is that look to the mundane first. You don't necessarily jump to the conclusion that uh, just because an object that comes from another star is acting in a way we don't expect means it's an alien spaceship. Mm -hmm. In fact, let's look at the more mundane explanations first. Look at the evidence and try to figure out what's going on. Um, in my opinion, based on the evidence that I have seen, uh, Dr. Loeb's conclusion that this is a spaceship, or at least, you know, if you want to say it's a spaceship, I would say the evidence doesn't even come close to, to that conclusion. If you say it might be a spaceship, that's different. Then I'll say, well, let's take a look at this and say, you know, how would a spaceship behave? Why does this thing make you think it's not natural? What is the evidence that it is natural? And just because you don't have an explanation for something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. the, the idea now is that Oumuamua, this, this object which came from interstellar space and passed through the solar system a couple of years ago, we thought it was an asteroid, then it started acting like a comet, but it doesn't really act like a comet completely. And there have been a lot of different ideas that have been posited because it acted very oddly. And the latest one uh, is that it's a chunk of nitrogen ice, frozen nitrogen. Um, that actually explains really well a lot of the stuff that we've seen. Maybe not everything, but a lot of it. And uh, there's even a source for chunks of nitrogen ice when solar systems form. So you know, you know, if you want to posit something that is fairly extraordinary, alien spaceship, you can't just show me the evidence that supports your claim. You have to show me why it's not a nitrogen chunk. Mm. And I don't think that has been done yet. Interesting. Yeah. And certainly, that was a long answer, but there you go. Well, that's what I get from yeah. rambling. It's a waiting topic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it's, you know, of, of vital importance because to the extent that science is perceived by the public, it's typically not really only looking at, you know, someone like you or me who, you know, have certain, uh, you know, privileged uh, abilities and, and, and past light, light cones, so to speak. Uh, but it's someone, you know, who does something very specialized, you know, with very specialized equipment 
you know, and and, and off access, off off out of access to a normal person. Just the same way, like I wouldn't go down to the hospital to the radiology department and start you know poking around the MRI machine just because I understand Robbie oscillations or you know it, it's it's specialized. Right? Oh God, I, I would. <laughs> Every time I get an X-ray, I'm like, hey, I wonder what wonder what uh, energy range this one is. I'll take a look at the plaque on it. Start asking questions. Yeah. I'm yeah. Can I borrow some of that liquid nitrogen? I got to test that umuamua theory uh, for for myself. Um, but uh, but yeah, science is perceived as as you know these special people doing special things. And I think you know some of the some of the positive things that that people like Carl Sagan would do. Or Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, who's an upcoming guest, by the way. So please do make sure you stretch your little finger and don't get carpal tunnel syndrome. Phil will tell you, subscribe not only to my channel, to my Twitter, to his channel, his Twitter, and his newsletter, which is uh, Must Read Bad Astronomy News, which I look forward to every Monday, coming into my inbox fresh and piping hot with the latest, greatest <laughs> astronomical news, uh, some of which I actually teach in my uh, cosmology class. I'll, I'll bring in really? some, some cool image and some description that you – uh, very scientifically will link to other people uh, who do the research. And I think that's what I love about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I can't wait to tell him in person next week. And by the way, there are people praising you, thanking you for inspiring their love of astronomy, Phil. So you should know oh, wow. what a difference you make in the chat room, but all around the world. But let me just well, say in you. this second meandering question, uh, people like Sagan <clears throat> and people like uh, and people like Neil deGrasse Tyson also suffer. They suffer because um, they're perceived as not real scientists, you know, real scientists stay in the lane, stay in the lab, uh, you know, don't get out there and, and you know, and, and do the stuff that, you know, anybody can do. Anybody can do what Neil deGrasse Tyson, anyone could do what Phil Plate does. I mean, three TED Talks. Oh, come on. Anybody can do that. Um, but they can't really be a real scientist. And so what do you make of the fact that we're almost punished? You know, I was asked once, uh, I actually talked to Jan Levin, who I'm sure you know, um, and she told me when she wrote her first book, it was before she even had a tenure track position. And then she, her mm. second book was written. She had tenure and, um, and they said, um, and she asked her department chair, can I get time off uh, to write my next best book, which uh, next book, which was a work of fiction, which is phenomenal. And uh, the department chair said, no, you can't get time off, uh, but you should feel lucky if we don't uh, penalize you. <laughs> so it's almost like, you know, you sh we as scientists who write popular works, we almost get not credit. We get the opposite of credit. We get debit. So what do you make of that? Why is there a, a thirst for, by the public, but almost an antipathy from our fellow scientists towards the work that you so well exemplify? <laughs> well, well, thank you, first of all. Um, uh, that used to be a bigger problem. Let me, let me, talking about privilege, uh, being born when I was, uh, to have people like, Carl Sagan and, and a host of others uh, talk about science in a public venue. And, it, you know, Carl wasn't the first. Uh, that, that, that's a tradition that's gone on for centuries. But he went on mass media. He went on uh, Johnny Carson's show, uh, Tonight Show, wrote books, wrote for Parade Magazine, which is read by you know, tens of millions of people. Uh, and so uh, he really went out there and, and talked up not just science, but also the ethics of science, the morality that we have to uh, to, to use when we employ science in our lives. Uh, and, and that was a huge deal. And yeah, he got, uh, he got a lot of grief for it from a lot of other scientists who were thinking, well, you know, talking to the masses, this is not what we do. We are scientists. We are removed from the lay people and we, we will be in our ivory tower and dole out these, these bon mots of, of wisdom as, you know, uh, of reality as, as we see fit. And like, that's, that's garbage in my opinion. Um, I, I will argue, 
the point, some people say all scientists should be out there talking about their work. And I, I disagree. Some are better than others. Mm. Uh, you know, I, 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 I watch my friends who go out and talk about certain things on TV or on Twitter or whatever. And I think, wow, I wouldn't have phrased it that way. And the way they did it was way better than I would have thought of. Mm. So, you know, we need, we need different people doing this. Uh, but we also, we, we need to understand that um, there are different ways to do this and different, different people who are, who are better at it in some ways than other. Um, and I'm always happy to refer to somebody else if, if I think this is a person who, who can relay this better than I can, certainly. Um, that has not completely gone away. Mm. It has really been reduced, this idea that we shouldn't communicate science to the public. We should just be doing science. Well, let me tell you a secret. I wasn't that great of a scientist. Um, that was okay. You know, I got my degree. I worked on uh, some some big projects for a while, the Hubble and doing some other things. And we published papers and everything, and I did my part. Um, but it was never going to be, you know, big, important, groundbreaking stuff that I was working on. Um, it was important, and I was a member of a team of people doing it. But I wasn't the one, you know, doing this, this, this research and going out and doing, uh, uh, getting all the grants and doing all that sort of stuff that you kind of think of when you think of a scientist. Um, turns out I'm better at talking about it. So I started doing that. Uh, you have to find the talents that people have and, and, and let, let that bloom, I think. So there are going to be scientists I don't think should be in front of a camera. And I think there are science communicators like me who maybe shouldn't be doing science anymore. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. That is, that's more allowed now. I think I hardly get any grief from people saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. I almost never hear that. And when I do, it's from people who, who don't really understand the importance of communicating science. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, do I, and, and sometimes I hear people saying, well, you're not a scientist anymore. And I'm like, I'll cop to that. You know, I'm not doing the research anymore. I'm reading as pretty much as much as any scientist does. I read a lot of papers oh, yeah. um, because I have to write about it. I have to understand them to a depth where I can sit down and write about it and not, not screw it up completely. So I try to understand the science as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, not being an active research scientist anymore. Yeah, sure. That's, that's true. But that doesn't mean I can't still talk about it. Uh, and I think we need to appreciate what everybody's doing in their own way when we do this sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. When I think about, um, you know, science communication, and by the way, we've got some amazing guests in the chat room. We've got Christian, uh, from Launchpad Astronomy, uh, who runs a huge oh, yeah. channel, coming up on uh, 100,000 subscribers. And then we have a man by the name oh, wow. of uh, Charles Darrow, who is married uh, to one of the uh, foremost astronomers of our age, uh, Professor Sarah Seeger of ah, uh, Massachusetts, nice. a little technical college called Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also in Cambridge. We've got a bunch of people in the chat room, which is wonderful to see. Uh, so we're talking again with the bad astronomer himself, Dr. Phil Plate, who is a proponent, an exponent, an expert exponent of scientific communication. Charles is saying in the chat room, and I cannot fail to disagree with him less, if you can parse that, uh, that science, proper communication of science is as important as the science itself. I interviewed his wife, uh, Professor Sarah Seeger, and she also kind of reiterated this stance that um, sometimes, you know, as, as, as we discussed, the higher you fly, the more visible you are, the easier you are to be a target, to shoot down. And I just wonder, uh, to push back a little bit on your otherwise excellent, you know, sentiment, how do we know... <laughs> Uh, that scientist isn't a particular scientist isn't good at 
at um, you know doing public communication until she tries it. You know, I think you know Sarah's very candid with some of the struggles she had in her career uh, and, and so forth. But uh, she's now become this outstanding scientific communicator because she worked at it. She actually told me, and this, uh, by the way, this episode will come out after the episode we're talking about, so it's a little weird. We talked about it in the past, but we talked over almost two weeks ago. And she said she took classes in public speaking. She's taking classes yeah. in management. And I always hear my colleagues who will remain nameless, um, you know, John Lucent. Uh, no, no, I won't say that. Uh, uh, there's no such person. Uh, but, uh, but my colleagues will say, oh, I'm not good at that. And uh, it's a lot of work. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. You know, uh, learning about type 2 superconductivity in, type, in uh, nemectic fluids at, uh, you know, in condensed matter, that was really trivial. I mean, you just came out of the <laughs> womb knowing that, right? You didn't have to work on that at all, did you? And uh, of course, you know they 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 have to admit that they had to work at that too. Uh, but what do you make of this? That that physicists are so resistant, or scientists in general rather, are resistant to it, um, to learning how how to do it. And maybe the best way to entree into that question is: How did you learn to do it? You you are a scientist. You came from a scientific background. You're very conversant. Did you did you dedicate some time to this you know quote unquote craft, as they say, of being a communicator? Ah, uh, yeah. Um... No. Yeah. I mean, yes, but no. Um, uh, and, and I should say that, uh, yeah, Sarah's great. I, I was on a panel with her many years ago, uh, and I, I just thought she was wonderful. And, um, the fact that she, she said to herself, I need to, to, you know, get better at this and I need to do it in a formal way is amazing. That's fantastic. And I know a lot of people who have done that and I've, I've thought about it. I've actually considered taking, um, improv class mm. because, you know, if you're, if you're out there on stage and, and there's a lot of talking going on and you have to come up with something that makes sense and is funny and fits in with the overall scheme, that's, that's really what, what you and I are doing right here. Uh, and you don't want to hog the stage and give long winded answers that take 10 minutes every time somebody asks you a question. Mm -hmm. Not that, not that I've been doing that here. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it, I think that that's a great idea. I never actually did anything formal. What happened was, um, I just started writing because mm -hmm. I, I felt like, you know, I like to write, uh, I can make a point and, uh, it'll be fun. Uh, so I, 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 in, in that sense, I, I did it in a very, um, um, thought out way where I thought to myself, if I ever want to write a book and I think I do, which eventually became bad astronomy, I need to get some notoriety first. I need practice. I need to write that sort of thing. And I started writing articles and publishing them. I started um, doing some free Q&A type stuff for Astronomy Magazine years ago. Somebody would ask a question and I'd have to write an answer to it. And it had to be kind of brief, which, you know, that's ridiculously hard for me to be brief, obviously. <laughs> but I never took a public speaking class or anything like that. Um, basically, uh, kind of jumped into the deep end. And, you know, they and what happened was years and years ago, um, I had, you know, I, I did an interview where they stuck a camera in my face and they wanted to record some, some, some things for, for a pilot for a TV show. And it was awful. I was terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it turns out I, I'm not good at memorizing lines. I didn't understand how to talk to the camera. There's a lot going on there. When you see somebody who's very smooth on camera, that's very rarely, uh, their first time in front of a camera and just like anything else, you know, like learning about uh, type two superconductivity, mm -hmm. this is not necessarily something that comes natural. You have to do it a few times and see how you're bad at it and go, Oh, next time I'll do this. Uh, and 
so you you evolve. Hate to use that word, uh, but you you change, you learn, you you uh, fix things that go wrong, and at some point you get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, it's it's an ongoing process. I see again friends of mine on camera, and I think, wow, I will never be that smooth in one take. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's always going to happen. There's always going to be people out there who do it better, but that doesn't mean you can't improve. And if that means you know, you can take classes now on science outreach. That did not exist when I was, <laughs> one of the reasons I never did this formally is because I couldn't. You can get degrees in this sort of thing now. Right. Uh, that wasn't true 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and and so, you know, God bless them, the folks coming in now and doing it. They're going to be a whole lot better than my generation. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I think about it. By the way, you're getting a request from from Christian Reddy, who is the proprietor of the Launchpad Astronomy uh, YouTube channel, which uh, he has been so gracious to have me on. He wants me to plug in my spare time you to come on his broadcast, Planetarium broadcast. So I'll let, I'll, I'll, will work. Email me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will have him email. Great. Um, so the next uh, topics I want to turn to now, after we've kind of gone through the uh, science communication <clears throat> uh, gamut, is what fascinates you so much about science? And uh, what kinds of things would you be doing? I'm going to give you, uh, we're going to do a thought experiment. I'm going to give you three different budgets ranging from a million to 10 million to a billion dollars. And I'm going to ask you what you would do with those budgets. What interests you about science and, and what do you make of the kind of very high you know, level of commitment funding-wise, talent-wise, this, this kind of pe- spectrum of people around the world that we need and get to work with to make scientific discoveries possible? So what uh, excites you the most about astronomy these days or physics or science in general? What are you most fascinated in? What questions are the most burning to you right now? Uh, that's, that's interesting. I don't know if anybody's asked me that in quite that way. Um, a, a lot of it, a, a lot of what's going on right now is really fascinating. And, and some of it is not necessarily the sort of groundbreaking work um, that you expect. Like, you know, we're learning about what the universe was like in its first few seconds or, you know, how black holes were. Some of it is just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're finding new planets orbiting other stars. I love exoplanets. This whole field is just amazing to me that when I was a kid, we did not know of any planets orbiting other stars. Uh, in 1992, they found the first ones. And then in 1995, they started finding them orbiting stars, kind of like the sun. And, and now I, I haven't even, I don't even know where we are now. It's well past 4,000 yeah. uh, confirmed planets orbiting other stars. Um, and that that has all been very exciting. I mean, it's really exciting to think, yes, we are now seeing that our solar system isn't special. We didn't really know, right? <laughs> and, and when I was a kid and you'd read these theories about the, the hypotheses of how the planets formed, and they were always sort of these wacky ideas. And it's like, that doesn't seem like you know, a nearby star passing the sun pulls off a tendril of gas and this collapses to form planets. And it's like, well, that doesn't happen very often. If that's the case, then we may be the only planetary system in the galaxy. And it turns out that idea is totally wrong. Um, but the idea, the, the bigger idea here is that, you know, are we special in some way or not? And it turns out, no, it looks like uh, a large fraction, if not most stars, have planetary systems around them or, or did, and they're, they're changing all the time. And so there's a lot of foref- a lot of a lot of stuff on the on the edge there on the forefront of science where we're learning about planetary atmospheres, how planets behave, how they form, and a lot of it is just I don't want to say stamp collecting because 
that's sort of a, yeah. a denigrating term, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is simply just there's another planet, there's another planet, there's another planet, yeah. and and you accumulate this knowledge, you accumulate this, and at some point, it's you're not just looking at each one as being special. You're starting to look at each one of them as belonging to a group. And as the numbers get bigger and bigger, you start to see, oh, we're discovering more planets like this and fewer like that. And that sort of thing, that sort of meta-analysis of, of not just that we're discovering them, but how how they're behaving, the ne- that's the next step in science. Um, that to me is fascinating. And I don't know why I love it. Um, you know, why do you love the music you love? Why do you like this genre of literature and not that genre? It just speaks to you for some reason. For me, it's always just been a love of science, uh, and uh, that's I, I. It's hard to disentangle my love of science and science fiction, for that matter. You know, they say, did the science fiction inspire your love of science, or did you love science and that naturally led you to science fiction? It's like it's both. You know, it can be both, and they feed on each other. Yeah, and I think it's the same sort of thing here. I just love it. I, you know, I, I don't. It's certainly, certainly, I enjoy the large philosophical aspects of it. Why are we here? You know, is there a purpose? And there are things like, there are things that science can answer with uh, some of those questions. And that to me is fascinating. Yeah. But, you know, it's also, it's just, it's just a thing I really love. And I, th- and, and sometimes I think that's enough. <laughs> so we've got a crowd <laughs> over there. I'm going to take this time to do a couple of sound effects and get my money's worth out of this machine. <laughs> Air horn or two. We just love everything you're doing. Uh, I'm going to take a little pause now. One of the benefits of doing what I do is the money. No, uh, not the money. No, but I get to meet incredible people from around the world, including one, Miguel Tully, who lives in Colorado, not far from Boulder uh, uh, and Denver. And he is a U.S. Army veteran and a, hmm. a wonderful artist who's gotten into NFTs and he's He's doing all sorts of blockchain art for me and for people like upcoming guest uh, Eric Weinstein. Stay tuned for that. Uh, I'm going to play a little interlude because we're going to take a little break. Pause. Have a little sip of whatever you're drinking. I've got some Simon's Observatory whiskey here that I would be drinking if it wasn't Passover, uh, which forbids me from drinking <laughs> the uh, the distilled glutinous beverage known as uh, Scotch whiskey. But I will I'm take a little break. That. We'll come back in about 10 seconds. There we go. Now and just enjoy Miguel Tully's interlude entitled Yeti Ears. live on the Into the Impossible podcast. It's a pleasure to be joined by none other than Dr. Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, followed him for 20 years. I think it's the 20th anniversary of the release of this book uh, that I have multiple versions and copies of. That's right. Bad Astronomy, written by a good person. The Moon Landing Hoax, Astrology, Misuses and Misconceptions Revealed. And now I want to turn to a delicate subject, and I'm hoping to get your advice because you uh, do so much, uh, you know, outreach and connection to to the world. Uh, I often get emails, and the emails will start off uh, Professor Keating with a lot of lavish praise. We love what yeah, I love what you do, and it's wonderful. And there's just one problem with your guest Frank Wilczek and Sheldon Glashow uh, and uh, Barry Barish. Uh, they don't really know the secret of the theory of everything that I've discovered. And that I need access to you because I'm not good at math, 
Uh, but if you help me, I do promise you that I will share the Nobel Prize uh, that uh, that I will surely win. I will share at least the money, uh, maybe maybe not the money. I'll share the medal. You can borrow it on weekends. Uh, so I get this a lot, where there are people, you know, kind of saying Einstein was wrong. They thought Einstein was right, but he's actually kind of a little bit of a crank, and and he got made all those blunders, right? So scientists make blunders. I make blunders. Therefore, I'm like Einstein. Uh, but the question I have for you is. The other side of things, I get also very serious scientists. Uh, your friend Michio Kaku is coming on the show next week, and he has a book called uh, The God Equation. And I'll get to God a little bit later if you'll indulge me. Uh, but The God Equation speaks about knowing the mind of God. If we only can come up with a one-inch long equation that will unite uh, physics and uh, all the physics of the atom with the physics of the of the cosmos, and. Uh, I sometimes wonder, are they cranks too? You know, and 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 how do we, how do you, you know, put together a crank detector? I mean, this is an obviously erudite person, incredibly brilliant. He was one of the forefathers and is of string theory, and I wish him a great deal of success. But you know, when you make claims like that, uh, you know that it's that it's somehow, um, you know, so far out, and people thought I was crazy, or they thought Einstein was crazy. How do I deal with that? <laughs> I guess I'm begging you. How do I deal with the kind of, uh, you know, how do I walk the line when someone could be a genius? Could have the true theory of everything later. Hopefully today I'm talking with Eric Weinstein about his theory called geometric unity. How do you know that somebody – or it's worth pursuing because we only have so much time. It's a very limited resource. So what would you advise? Right. Well, you can't know, right? Um, you can know when someone's wrong. Uh, I get a lot of uh, – well, I, I, I don't get as many emails as you might expect for somebody who's stuck his neck out to debunk uh, bad ideas. Uh, it's kind of amazing. My friends, my, my friends who do more science than I do, uh, tend to get more. I'll send you um, some, but yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, but you know, I can get an email and know right away. This, this person's wrong. If first of all, if they just say Einstein was wrong, I'm done delete or, you know, on but Twitter. But he was block. wrong. He made a blunder, right? But he, he, well, yeah, sure. He made, he made a mistake. Um, but that was just in a, you know, we're talking about here, I assume you're talking about the cosmological constant yeah. where uh, his equations that when Einstein wrote out his equations of the, the behavior of the universe, um, uh, it was thought that the universe was static at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't changing really, but his equations implied that it was either expanding or contracting. Uh, and he just said, well, that can't, that obviously can't be. So he threw an extra thing into his equation, which made it static. Uh, and it turns out that was a mistake, but it was a mistake made for the right reason. Uh, and it turns out his equations were in fact correct and the universe is expanding. Uh, and so even if you want to say that he was wrong about some things, um, he wasn't wrong about everything. Uh, <laughs> relativity works super well. You know, if you drove around uh, using, well, not that, any, not that many people are driving at the moment, but if, if you're using uh, uh, GPS uh, for your map system in your car or whatever, you, that won't work without relativity. Right. Um, the, the, everything, everything we see is not working. Now, relativity, excuse me, everything we see in, in, in astronomy pretty much is, is, is very well defined by relativity. Um, but not, not exactly everything. I don't want to over-exaggerate that. Quantum mechanics, which talks about the very small, and relativity, which talks about the very large, things that are moving very fast, things that have a lot of gravity. Those two theories don't talk to each other well when they overlap. And that's a, that's a real problem right now. Um, that's, that's uh, hawking radiation out of black holes and all this sort of thing is, is sort of where that, those two, uh, theories have their frontier with each other. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Like people say Newton was wrong. 
Einstein showed Newton was wrong. It's like, no, he didn't. He improved what Newton had come up with. Newton just was incomplete. Uh, Einstein added to that. And so we're going to have another theory that'll add to relativity at some point because we know relativity is incomplete. Uh, and so is quantum mechanics. Um, the thing is, if somebody says, I've been able to do that, you know, I, um, who needs a college education in math? And I'm like, well, you kind of have to understand the math to, to, to show how, how quantum mechanics and relativity work. You have to understand how they work first before you can show how they're wrong. Yeah. And if somebody just jumps right in with an email to me and says, Einstein was wrong, I'm like, yeah, we're done. Yeah. But if somebody says to me, Einstein was incomplete and I've got this idea, typically it's, you know, it's, it's going to be over my head. I'm not a cosmologist. I'm not a relativistic physicist. I don't know that stuff to that level. Um, so it's some, it's, if, if it seems right, I, I, I'll email them back and say, this is interesting, but you, you know, I can't help you. You need to talk to somebody else. Mm. Um, and if it's, if it's clearly a crackpot, uh, away it goes. How do you tell the difference? I don't know. <laughs> you know, you kind of know it when you see You're it. You're helping it, out here, Phil. Well, it's like everything else in the universe. There's <laughs> no, it's not binary. It's not crackpot and right. right. You know, there, there's a spectrum along this along this this continuum here, and you you just have to decide at what point it gets too fuzzy for you to be able to say one way or another. Mm. Uh, and we see this over and over again in astronomy. We see it in human behavior. We see it in in everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I, you know, and, and, and scientists do this too. I, you know, I've, I've known scientists who later in life typically have kind of lost it. They've lost their, their way and they're making these grand assumptions that are wrong mm. uh, or, or at least not based on a good evidence. And I can't say anything about Michio Kaku's book. I haven't read it. Um, I haven't read Avi Loeb's book about uh, Oumuamua. Um, I've just seen what he's written, you know, online and stuff like that. And I can say, I think saying it's a spaceship is going too far. Um, if, if somebody comes out with a book that says, you know, we are approaching an equation, which describes God, I'd be like, well, you know, let's define our terms here. What do you mean by God? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and if you mean you have an equation, which unites quantum mechanics and relativity and, and can, when, when examined correctly can explain every known phenomena in the universe. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. But if you want to jump into uh, a religious aspect of this, I, I kind of back off and go, well, uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I always say, you know, a theory of everything is sometimes not as good as or not as bad as a theory of anything. And uh, oftentimes I have to I'm trying to call it up here. But um, the end of Kaku's book. And again, I have great respect for him. I always treat my guests with, uh, you know, fairness and, and, and conciliation or conciliatory approach, uh, because I do think, you know, debates are rarely won. Right. I mean, you're really like, oh, man, you made a great point. Now I'm going to vote for Trump. You know, I mean, this is not going to happen. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think I could convince you of that in any. That was me. No. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but looking at uh, looking at, uh, you know, religion and, uh, you know, I think I had on, as I said, an intelligent design proponent and that was a lot of fun and we were respectful uh however i do feel like the god card is overplayed a lot in science by people that are secular for example the last few words of um kaku's book this time uh the god equation are the last three words from uh stephen hawking's epochal a brief history of time which i'm sure you read and i read and influenced me greatly and those words are you know when we can come up with this equation or this theory then we will truly know the mind of god and we've heard about God particles. We've heard about, uh, you know, the mind of God, the God equation. Um, so I just feel like it is kind of bandied about. And 
And I, I don't think that does a lot of service either to God, because I think a lot of times, even from a theological standpoint, you know, people that, uh, you know, are, are so distant from it, they, they might be looking for the authority that religion connotes. Or in, in Bantam's case, in the case of Stephen Hawking's first publisher and briefest, the editor supposedly put his, you know, foot down and said, you have to, you can't rule out, you know, God, you know, half of our, of our audience is going to be cut out and the other half will be cut out by the equation that you had in the book. You know, he famously said, every equation reduces your audience by half and every mention of God doubles it. So uh, I now want to turn to, you know, kind of science and, 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 um, and humanity, uh, but more on the political standpoint, not, not your politics, but just how do, you do, what do you, how do you handle things that have a scientific impact on human affairs where, you know, it's almost as if the scientists play a role in the governance of human beings. And um, oh, yeah, absolutely. we like to see nowadays that the budget's increasing with the current administration. That's all wonderful. Um, but then you hear other things like we're the party of science and we believe in science or follow the science. And I'm afraid that sometimes it might mean like obey scientists. And I, I feel like, no, I voted for the president. I, I didn't vote for like some unnamed, you know, uh, phalanx of, of uh, unaccountable dictator scientists, right? So uh, the question specifically in the, in the chat room is about Starlink, you know, which will provide internet, low cost, cover the whole planet perhaps, and, and bring bandwidth as Joe Biden, our president, just mentioned a couple of days. That's a huge priority to bring internet to underserved populations. Um, on the other hand, that might impact science, right? It might uh, destroy certain astronomical measurements, specifically in cosmic microwave background research, where the signals are in our band, uh, so to speak, but also in optical astronomy. So what do you make of that? The the kind of unelected nature of science and the, and the fact that we're asked to listen to scientists. Sorry for rambling. But how do you balance the, the, the <laughs> and you, listening you, to science you and the like three different things. Yeah, I mean, any one of these three topics could be like an hour-long discussion. Um, well, we're, we're halfway no, done. Right. No, no, no. We're almost wrapping up, yeah. so I promise I won't when, meander it, anymore. <laughs> when a politician on behalf of their party says, we are the party of science, uh, uh, yeah, put, make sure your your hands on your wallet and your back pocket <laughs> and it's not going to get stolen. Um, in, in this particular case, uh, you know, politicians can say things like that. And I know, in in fact... There are politicians who have been saying we are the party of science now, and and the evidence is not there for that. In fact, the evidence is quite strongly against them. Um, here's the thing: our society depends on science right now. Mm. Um, you know, engineering. Uh, if you want to, you want to put science and engineering in the same lump. When I, and I'm I'm okay with that in this case. Uh, but we depend on this uh, critically for our civilization. We are talking over the internet right now. I'm talking to you through a camera which uses uh, quantum mechanics and uh, electrical equations and relativity because of the satellites. There's just all of the science that goes into the internet and our economy is, is strongly dependent on the internet. Um, the science is showing us that fossil fuels are making our planet uninhabitable uh, in, in, in some senses. Uh, that is science. That is a scientific conclusion. And that sort of science, you know, if, if I discover that spiral arms in a galaxy wind one way versus another, that's probably not going to affect how you're going to buy food next week. On the other hand, if, uh, if, if uh, somebody has a bogus science uh, research thing that says if we, if we dam this river, it's just going to be money flowing into your bank, <laughs> you know, that's, you, you got to be careful here. There is science that absolutely impacts you directly in your daily life. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if in, in 20 years, you're probably not going to be able to find 
uh, a gasoline-powered car to buy. Maybe not 20 years, but in some time in the near future. Uh, that's a scientific decision that is in influencing politics. When the politicians say, yeah, you know what? We're going to ban CFCs because they're destroying the ozone. We're going to ban, you know, we're going to make sure we're going to test for mercury in your water. These are scientific findings that you that have to be applied to our lives. Science is going to be political in this sense. Uh, it's not always obvious what the choice is. Uh, it, we saw this with the vaccinations over the past year when they, you know, how, and, and just with COVID itself, how is it spread? Is it spread by touching? Is it spread by aerosols? Is it, you know, this, that? Should we wear masks? One mask, two masks? Should we be indoors, outdoors? The science wasn't obvious at first, and that caused some confusion. Now we have a lot better grasp of that thing. So you've got to also realize that you can't just take the first science that comes along and apply it. Um, we have to learn what's going on. There could be subtle effects that we don't understand. People don't like to think that way, and that makes it harder. Um, but you know, you're not electing shadowy dictatorial scientists. You know, these scientists are out there doing their thing. They have to talk. They are beholden in, in in their position to talk to politicians. Politicians are beholden to listen to the scientists, not pick and choose the science they like and don't like, which is what the party of science is doing right now. Um, but to listen to them and say, you know, how, how sure are we of this and what kind of policy can we put into place now uh, that is best given what we understand right now? That, I think, is the role of science and politics and politics and science. All right. And yeah, you have to be careful. You don't end up like Galileo and get, you know, fact check false by the uh, prevailing scientific authorities of the day. Yeah, well, he also irritated the, the uh, authorities at the time, too. He went out of his way to do that. So yeah. that's a good lesson for scientists, too. That's Although right. Not one I take. I, I seem to have taken terribly well. Don't I pick on politicians all the time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like he didn't have an example. Bruno was only, you know, 10 years older than him. And he uh, he suffered as well for being slightly impolitic, as they say. So, yes, I won't be saying anything negative about uh, about the director of the National Science Foundation today. Um, so I'm just showing on the screen here the the, um, the the triumph of human reason. If we find an answer to that, Hawking says it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason for then we would know the mind of God. Uh, well, we've been uh, privileged to be picking the mind of Phil Plate, bad astronomer good person, fun to talk to. And Phil, I'm going to wrap up the stream as I do with all the guests who honor me with their presence here. Uh, we have a tremendous uh, fan base here for you. And I do want to encourage people to go to uh, Phil's Phil's Twitter handle, which is at, uh, at Bad Astronomer, and, uh, and give him a follow. He is worth following. And he has a wonderful newsletter, Bad Astronomy News, which comes out every Monday. I read it religiously uh, and uh, even will sometimes not read the full edition, the print edition of Physical Review D, so I can just concentrate on Phil's newsletter. Uh, Phil, what I do typically is I ask. I'm not peer reviewed, though. So. <laughs> not yet. That's right. That, that's uh, the, when you pay for the the version on Substack, then you get the peer review. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so I ask all my guests the following uh, three questions. One is going to take us uh, into your personal future. Uh, 60, 70 years from now, uh, when you depart this mortal coil of natural causes in your sleep, uh, like my grandfather and not like those people in the backseat of his car. No, no, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. Uh, but uh, it revolves around what is known as an ethical will. And it's partially uh, related to the Nobel Prize in that Alfred Nobel didn't have children. It didn't have heirs, uh, biological at least. And he endowed this prize to uh, partake in activities that would lead to the benefit of all mankind. 
So it wasn't purely about material or technology. It was about benefiting human life. I want to ask you, what would you put in your will that revolves around wisdom? So we call it a, a wisdom will, a zaba'ah in Hebrew. It means basically an ethical will. What kind of thing would you want for future generations to know specifically about you? Um, that I had a joy uh, about science. Uh, and, and in this case, I mean science as a method of understanding reality as best we can. And uh, that it, there is joy in it and there's passion in it. Uh, and that if when you, when you truly start to understand the way the universe works, um, it becomes a thing of beauty, a thing of art. And that art and science are simply two sides of the same coin. Wow, that's lovely. And it fits in very nicely with uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake of this institution that I co-direct uh, for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. And we'll get to the, the final question relating to the name of the podcast in just one bit. Uh, the second question now takes us not to your far future. You know, as uh, Woody Allen said, um, you know, I, I, what do you want people to say about you in 100 years? He said, I want to say I want them to say that I look pretty good for a 180 year old. Uh, but I want to ask you, in a billion years, uh, what kind of uh, sentence would most encapsulate what humans have learned about science as of 2021? And I'll, I'll give you a lead, uh, a lead in of what, how Richard Feynman, past guest on my podcast. No, no, he wasn't a guest on my podcast. <laughs> and he was actually famous for saying uh, the first principle is that you shouldn't fool yourself. And the second principle is today's April Fool's Day, but uh, hopefully I haven't been too foolish. But getting back to Feynman, he said the most important statement that contains the most information and the fewest words is that everything is made of atoms. I want to ask you, what discovery about science or, you know, in one sentence or two maybe, would you put on a monolith, like these monoliths that appear in 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, that would last for a billion years? Is there anything that encapsulates how much, how grand humans have achieved, the grandeur of our achievement? that in scientific terms that you would feel is worthy of betray, you know, portraying on a time capsule to last for billions of years, perhaps. That is a tough question. That's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I might quote somebody else and say that um, life is the universe's way of knowing itself. Mm. That uh, the universe without life is just a thing that exists. But mm. when life can actually comprehend what the universe is and life's part of that universe, you know, that's, that's when things get very interesting. So uh, I would say probably uh, the universe doesn't revolve around you. Uh, humans, humans finally maybe fig started to figure this out. We took our first steps towards figuring that out, that we were part of a much larger reality um, that we had, that, that we had ever known before. Uh, and that uh, we strove to seek out how that, how the universe works and and what our part in it is. Wow. Uh, so I have a question from uh, Creon Levitt, who's joining us on Clubhouse. I guess I wanted to know um, if you came up with that yourself about the universe and about life being how the universe uh, becomes aware of itself, or if you are aware of John Wheeler's many uh, statements and aphorisms in that direction, the great physicist John Wheeler. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, uh, uh, I'll quote somebody else here. I, I wasn't sure who said it. I've seen it so many times in so yeah. many different ways. But yeah. it's such a wonderfully beautiful and fundamental thought uh, uh, that without life, the universe is, is just 
you know, it, it has no way of studying itself, but, <laughs> but life, yeah, you know, I, I don't like it when people say, what's the meaning of life? And I think, well, there's no meaning to life. It's not like there's a law written down that says, here's what you have to do. It's, it's, it's more like what, you know, what meaning do you find being alive? What meaning do you find in the universe? Uh, those are, it's just, it's a subtle difference. Um, but I like it. And I like the idea that without life, the universe just exists, but with life, it's, you know, when, when we study the universe, we are studying ourselves and vice versa. And yeah, well, Carl Sagan has said, oh, go ahead. That's something that Sam Harris certainly has brought up many times, which is, um, it's kind of like without conscious, without what you mean really is consciousness because life, I mean, I don't think that slime molds are busy studying the universe, but maybe they are. But anyway, um, I think we're maybe conflating consciousness with life here. But here's the issue, sure. like a universe without life, presumably, although not assuredly, is without consciousness. And then the issue is, well, a universe without consciousness is like an utter failure. Like there's nobody home. The lights aren't on. There's no, there's no joy. There's no love. There's no suffering. It's dead. And um, so it's very interesting to consider not it's very interesting consider the implications of that and particularly as you might know it's extremely interesting considering the implications of that if the earth is the only place within our uh, bubble radius that harbors consciousness right because that puts a lot of burden and promise on our shoulders whereas if you're one of these typical scientists who i worked with for so many years at nasa not universally but typically who are like oh for sure life is everywhere in the cosmos and there's consciousness and technology you know hundreds and thousands of planets it's like yeah well in that case it doesn't really matter what happens to us and that's a great way to get them fatalistic and nihilistic because right. humans don't matter who they care who cares someone else will carry the torch we don't know that we might be alone we should behave as if we are because if we are alone the entire future of the universe hinges on us. Okay, great. Thank you, Crown. We've got one more uh, time for one more comment from Martin. Uh, hey, Am, how are you, Ham? Hey, I'm doing good, thanks. Um, so I have one question, um, actually two. Uh, one is politics. Uh, so do you think that UBI could help realize the totality of human creative force? And if politics uh, doesn't work, uh, what is your favorite sci-fi book and movie? Okay. Thank you very much. I uh, The first part was garbled. What was the first part of the He's question? He's asking about uh, universal basic income, which I do think uh, makes oh, an appearance UBI, in many different, yes, okay. different sci-fi scenarios in one form or another. So first about that, uh, and then um, and if you have time, a uh, second question as well. Yeah. Oh, we'll have time for the second question because I can't answer the first one. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not an economist, uh, and so I, I have no idea if that's the right way to go or not. Um, I like the idea of raising the minimum wage to to keep up with inflation so that people who are doing important jobs uh, are, are paid for it. I think everybody who works should it be, be recompensed at a rate where they can afford to live. Uh, and so that 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 to me makes makes sense. I don't I don't even understand why we're not paying people enough uh, when we have the money to do this. Um, so that aside, um, I don't have a favorite science fiction book or movie um, because it, it's it's a uh, you know everything's neck and neck, and it's like what did I read last? I mean, 
<laughs> I, I was talking about the expanse earlier and I, that's, that's probably my favorite science fiction TV show that's on right now. I love it. I also love star Trek. Um, I like the expanse books. I've got, I've read all the books up to the last one that were just coming out soon. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I loved Larry Niven and Arthur C. Clarke. Um, I've actually got somewhere. Oh, look at this. I've got uh, the coming of the space age. No way. The first edition by awesome. Arthur C. Clarke. And, um, uh, it's even got his, uh, his book. Oh, his, wow. Oh, shoot. It's falling out. His book, his book plate. Holy cow. And uh, he signed it. This was That's given to me, actually. By, wow. Yeah, this was awesome. given to me by somebody who knew him many years ago. I never met him. What a joke. Um, but, you know, and, and just in... It's, it's like anything. It's, do you have a favorite piece of music? And it's like, well, it depends. You know, if I'm happy, I want to listen to this. If I'm sad, I want to listen to this. So <laughs> I, I, I try to avoid uh, those kind of superlatives if yeah. I can. Got it. I'm not trying to be Weasley. No, no, I'm no. actually trying to be a little bit more, uh, more subtle and allow a little more uh, complexity into the question. God forbid you ever weasel out of anything. <clears throat> those aren't allowed in Colorado. Oh, I will. Right? Yeah, you're, yeah. You're living near a weasel farm out there in Colorado. Uh, we're joined also today by uh, John uh, Michael Godier of the Event Horizon uh, YouTube channel. Please, everybody, subscribe to that. I have uh, some rumors that I will be on that channel very shortly. The Event Horizon <laughs> channel. I've been on it before, and it's one of my favorite of all time, as well as Launchpad Astronomy. Uh, run by Christian Reddy. These are just some of the brightest and best channels and audience in the known multiverse. Uh, but for now, I want to conclude, because uh, I know your time is so valuable, uh, uh, with uh, with everything you're involved with, Phil Plate, the Bad Astronomer. I'm going to ask you one last piece of advice. In this case, it revolves around the namesake, Arthur C. Clarke, of this uh, podcast, who said once, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the name of the podcast. That's how I came up with that. I want to ask you advice to your former self. What aspect of life, of science, of the universe once mystified you, but eventually you found the courage to go into the impossible and became that much richer for doing so? Ah, oh, wow. Have I, that's such an interesting question because I'm not sure I ever have, right? I was never, like I said, I wasn't really this groundbreaking scientist. On the other hand, um, it could be life some life. of the work, well, yeah, some, some of the work we did on Hubble was looking at things that nobody had ever been able to see before in such clarity, disks of gas and dust forming planets around stars. And again, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't know if there were other planets out there. So scientifically, I would say, Basically, you know, kid, don't worry. A lot of the questions you have right now, they're gonna they're gonna work out. You're gonna figure this out, uh, and you're gonna work with people who know who know the stuff even better, and, and you'll learn from them. Um, if I if I had life advice to myself as a kid, um, it would erase my reality now quite substantially because I was uh, I've talked about this in other other interviews before, but I was. A very privileged kid, right? In the in the in the social sense of privilege these days, very isolated in my thinking. Not uh, didn't really understand how other people thought, uh, and wound up growing out of that in a series of um, rapid uh, 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 sort of knee knee to the stomach sort of oof events where I you know where you get very embarrassed and you have to think back. It's like oh gosh, I, I've been a jerk this whole time. Um, you share one, but, uh, one of those fellows? Um, are they uh, just you know attitudes about about everything? About again about about other people, prejudices, uh, mm. uh, misogyny, all of that sort of thing. When you grow up in that environment, 
and you don't think about it. And then you get out of that environment and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I really was in a bubble and I got a lot of learning to do. Um, and that, that for some people that happens over their whole life. Sometimes it happens as an epiphany. Um, for me, it was a series of small, embarrassing epiphanies. Uh, and I, and I'm still trying. And so what I think in that case, I would say to this kid, you know, you're living your life a certain way and seeing things a certain way. There are other ways of seeing this. <laughs> You have to venture outside of what you think is the only way things go. And that's going to seem hard and it may seem impossible yes. to use that word. Yes. Um, but, you know, event, if you, if you do this on your own, you will avoid a lot of, uh, a lot of embarrassing situations later. Uh, <laughs> so that, I think that would be my advice. I think and, it's very and am I still here? Yep. Am I still? Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't work. Oh, well. <laughs> As you go, did you actually teleport back? Great reference there. And I think it's all the more appropriate, uh, although I am uh, devoutly Jewish. Uh, it is Easter weekend, and we do uh, want to recognize the uh, ability for human beings to achieve redemption. I think that is one of the good aspects of religion, that we don't treat people. Uh, there's so much cancellation and so forth. And, and just as you say, you should be able to forgive yourself, Phil, because you've done tremendous good for the planet, for the universe. Uh, we look up to you. And uh, and you've, you've given a tremendous amount. And there's uh, the company in this audience now has even expanded even further than I thought it would. Now we got Fraser Kane in the in the crowd, uh, who is uh, another hero of mine, a friend of the show, a delight in all ways. And I just want to thank you uh, for coming on the show. I want to encourage my whole audience, please, please, please visit all the great stuff that Phil does. You can find it at Bad Astronomer Sci-Fi. We didn't get a chance to talk about Sci-Fi. I do want to talk about that someday. That's okay. Uh, all it, the cool stuff. I write a lot. You can find it. And yeah, <laughs> you'll find it in the Bad Astronomy <laughs> newsletter. You've got to subscribe to that. Get the paid version. Give them a, give them a, a little bit of feedback monetarily, <laughs> which we've only been doing since the late Phoenician period on Earth. Uh, subscribe to his newsletter. Subscribe to this channel. We have Neil deGrasse Tyson coming next week. We have Michi Okaku coming next week. I'm going to have to space these guys out. Uh, John Mather, Sarah Seeger. We have unbelievable guests coming up on the Into the Impossible podcast. And I just want to extend a special thanks to you, Phil, uh, for, for really you know going out there a long time ago, uh, taking a risk, going into the impossible, writing a wonderful book, continuing as a scientist in the public eye. The public looks to you. You have a, tr a huge platform. I, I just uh, I, I can't thank you enough for the way that you use it. So I want to wish everyone blessings. If you do celebrate the holiday season of Easter, enjoy that. Otherwise, my Semitic friends, uh, enjoy the rest of Passover. And we will uh, have you and see you next time with great guests. We may even get a visit from Eric Weinstein later today. It is April Fool's, and he did promise a special release. So stay tuned. Subscribe, like, do all those cool things. And subscribe to everybody uh, that you can in the chat room as well. For now, signing off and thanking Phil from the bottom of our hearts for joining us on the Into the Impossible podcast. And we'll take us out with, again, another beautiful musical interlude from one of my greatest friends on the channel, who I wouldn't have met if I didn't do this podcast, Miguel Tully, U.S. Army veteran and Colorado inhabitant. Yeti Tears is his name. So for now, signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, I'm Stuart Volko, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you. 
and read every review and comment. And we're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating, and join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.